everybody. Welcome to Not Safe for Wonks. Uh, this is a very special episode. Obviously, we've just gone through a whole lot this week. We recorded uh, an episode with Donna Imam maybe a few days ago. But the way that COVID has just spread and taken so much of an impact, we kind of had at the last minute, we both thought, hey, we should just literally do this again because so much has changed. I'm here with Donna Imam. We're going to talk a little bit about the virus. We're going to talk a little bit about local response. And we're going to be talking about what we should be doing at a national level and why and where these issues have come from and things that we can do to move forward in a really sustainable way. So it's my pleasure to reintroduce Donna to the show. Hello. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing well. And I hope everybody listening is doing well and your loved ones are safe today. That's all I can uh, hope for. Um, You had a very exciting election. Uh, you're advancing to the runoff. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But how did it feel to get those results? Are you feeling positive about the way the campaign's going and where you're going to go forward from here? Yeah. So as you all know, I'm a first time candidate and we had a very crowded race here in Texas. There were six names on the ballot and we successfully not only just made it into the runoff, but We also led in Bell County. So our district, which is north of Austin, has Williamson and Bell County. It's the suburbs, north suburbs of Austin. And then it goes into rural parts um, of Texas all the way to Killeen. And Bell County is so critical to flipping this district blue because that's where we need to close the gap in 2020 in order to be able to flip this district. And we led there. So We're very impressed with our results and our ability to reach the voter at the door, which it was the focus of our campaign. We were able to directly engage over 70,000 voters. And more importantly, the number of people that came out in the primary for our district more than doubled over 2018. So it was an amazing election But right on the heels of the March 3rd Super Tuesday primary in Texas, we were met with this huge challenge of the COVID-19 outbreak and the way we're addressing that. But yeah, it was it's definitely something that our campaign and our volunteers and our staff are really proud of. It's obviously not like a smooth transition to go from electoral politics to the very serious life and death stuff that's going on in the country right now. So I'm not going to attempt to do that. I'm just going to kind of jump into this. Um, We are facing a lot of challenges just as a nation and even in your district. So can you talk a little bit about what the biggest challenges that we're facing uh, as we go into this season and what could we have done in advance uh, to be better prepared for something like this? Yeah, so the immediate problems that we're going to be facing is massive job loss and small businesses such as restaurants, bars, and small retailers being impacted in a huge way. So in Texas, we went from allowing only 250 people gatherings to over 24 hours, that being extremely diminished down to 10 people starting last Friday. So all restaurants and bars are not allowed to have their serving and dining areas open anymore, even though um, takeout or carryout is allowed. 
the the majority of the business that happens inside a coffee shop or a bar or a restaurant has gone down to zero. This is going to impact people losing their jobs at a massive scale. And we've already heard of people in the travel industry, hotel industry, et cetera, um, losing their jobs or their hours have been cut down to literally zero. And this is the biggest challenge we're going to face because when you go from already sort of living paycheck to paycheck, because the the people that work in these industries are already very vulnerable. Most restaurant servers don't have healthcare coverage. Most of them don't have lots of income just sitting around, you know, in their bank accounts. They are living on a on a very, you know, minimal income already. So when you hear that you've been laid off or your hours have been cut down to something that's unsustainable, this not only increases anxiety, but your entire life of how you're going to pay for the basic necessities like rent, utilities, and food becomes a massive challenge. That is the biggest thing that we are going to face and are facing as we speak today. The second biggest thing that we're going to face very rapidly is something that I've been talking for months now is that our country does not have enough primary care physicians. We do not have enough capacity in ER rooms. We Today, we use ER rooms as our front line of defense, which is why one of the reasons why our healthcare is so expensive. But the challenge we're going to face is that we don't have enough medical supplies. We don't have enough hospital beds. We don't have enough ER uh, specialists, and we don't have enough healthcare professionals. On top of that, you're hearing on the news already that we don't have enough ventilators We only have 160,000 ventilators in the entire country. We're anticipating the need for 960K ventilators. Uh, These are the numbers that are being thrown out there. So these are the major things that we're going to be facing. In terms of what we could have done to prepare for this, we had a pretty decent economy, you know, going up to this for the last three years. And when we as individuals, as a community, as a country do well, we're told, you know, growing up, you should save for a rainy day. But what the government did, instead of building for the future, instead of taking all the resources that they had and investing in an infrastructure, they gave the money away to corporations who use the money to do stock buybacks. Corporations did not increase people's individual salaries in a way that kept up with inflation and the cost of living around the country. But instead, they filled pockets of their investors and their executives. So this party, Trump and the GOP, have artificially misappropriated funds in many different ways. And I'll give you an example. They went out and bought so many F-35s during this during this COVID-19 episode to use up funds, which they actually gave them more than the even than the Pentagon even requested. So they also infused the market with money when they didn't need to. So instead of um, companies raising cash by release more stock, investing in more high-paid jobs, figuring out how to get more people on high-paid jobs, they did the exact opposite. And this is the thing that I want your listeners to understand is that the average person in the United States 
doesn't have a thorough understanding of our economic system, but we depend on our representatives in Congress and our senators to be able to ask the right questions. But currently, they're so focused on holding onto their seats that they're being bribed for pennies on the dollar by lobbyists and corporations who are using them to get away with billions and billions of our tax dollars that are generated by us working day in and day out. So they've completely misused our wealth in this country and gotten us to the spot today. So given the the problems of Congress's priorities, what are the priorities that Congress should have now um, in order to repair the damage, mitigate the damage, and like maybe put us on a better footing for the future? Absolutely. So the best thing Congress can do today, and you've seen me tweeting about this, is providing direct assistance. And here's why. When you provide direct assistance to cover basic necessities like rent and food and utilities for at least 30 days, you buy 30 days to do the next step, number one. Number two, you allow people to lower their anxiety and actually execute on social distancing properly. Because if you have the assurance, hey, my family's not going to go hungry, I'm not going to be evicted, now all of a sudden I'm focused on what I need to do to stay healthy. It's so important for Congress to act on this yesterday, and they're already delayed. The first wave of the stimulus package that they brought out was horrendous. Think about it. One of the big things that they're trying to do is saying that we have low interest loans for small businesses. Now, imagine you're a small business, you run a coffee shop or a restaurant, Mm -hmm. and the government is saying, come get a loan from us when you know that you're going to have no business or very (laughs) diminished business, you know, for the foreseeable uh, future. You don't know when you're going to get back to normal, number one. Number two, these are not interest-free loans. Number three, they're asking you to float employee paychecks when you don't know if you'll be ever be able to make this up. These are loans. These are not stimulus packages where you get to keep the money. So now the government is not only putting in a barrier for the money to get to the person who actually needs it to pay rent, utilities, food, but they're putting another layer there for people to qualify to get this loan at an interest rate and then give it to their employees. So they are exacerbating this problem in a big way by not acting fast. Think about when you have a major natural disaster, what do you do? You go out and you provide relief. First, you provide immediate relief, food, shelter, water. So the first thing that they should be doing is giving, sending every single American a check so that they can buy 30 days to do the right things they need to. That will help, number one, with the social isolation and help and helping people maintain that. Number two, we need to test in, if we really want to suppress. So we all know that there's a huge lack of testing supplies in the United States. We don't have enough tests to test anybody, everybody, number one. Number two, in order to get a test, you have to meet a criteria. Number three, you have to be able to go to a primary care physician. When we know that there are over... 80 million people in our country that don't have access to a primary care physician. That's more than a quarter 
of the population of our country. So the second thing they need to do is ensure that there are ample number of tests so that we can suppress this in addition to mitigating the immediate problems. Wait, can you explain what suppression and mitigation is and what the difference between those two and what policies do each? Yeah, so mitigating is where we already have a pandemic on our hand. So we want to immediately socially isolate everybody to mitigate the current challenge of transmission because we know this virus is very aggressive and it's extremely contagious. So that helps mitigate. Suppression on top of that takes the bell curve and takes it takes the peak of the bell curve down much lower than it needs to be. And the only way you suppress is by testing people who are not already um, showing uh, symptoms or showing minor symptoms. So for example, if you have 10 people in your restaurant kitchen now working to do to-go orders, what you want to be able to do is test these people over and over again to make sure none of them are carriers because now you're protecting that group. And every time you find a carrier, you want to isolate them very quickly. And you can only do that by testing. You want to take them out of the environment that they're in so they can no longer transmit. Because we know that many people have very little symptoms to none, but they're very much a carrier and can give it to other more vulnerable people. So that's the impact of suppression. And so it's really important to do both if we want to escape what's happened in Italy, for example, because they did a great job of mitigation. But in order to do suppression, you have to do testing. And you'll hear a lot of physicians talking about that right now. That is really, really important. The third thing that we absolutely have to do is we have to protect our healthcare professionals. These people are putting their lives on the line and their families' health and their lives on the line. We need to get them the resources they need to protect themselves to be able to do their job. And this is something that needs to happen today without delay. We cannot put healthcare professionals in front of this virus without proper protection. So those are the things if Congress does immediately, first buying themselves 30 days, making sure that they ramp up testing in a way that every single person can be tested that needs to be tested, and then supporting healthcare professionals. Those are the three things that need to happen right away. You've spoken a lot about direct assistance. Some of the proposals that I have seen going through Washington um, are direct assistance to people who are under a certain income bracket. Um, I've seen somewhere like if you're making under $100,000, you would be eligible um, based on your tax returns a little earlier. Can you explain uh, why you believe that these um, cash assistance payments should be given across the board to everyone, regardless of their income? Does it make a difference if someone is making $150,000 and gets extra cash? Um, what are the impacts of that kind of universal policy versus the impacts of a means-tested policy? So in the face of a pandemic, means testing is a way to do the opposite of suppressing the pandemic, because now you are giving more time for this virus to get out of control because people are anxious. They don't know if they can pay their bills and they are not going to be focused on the things they need to do to do social distancing 
and to contain this virus. It is really important for the government for the first paycheck or the check they're going to send to not be means tested, specifically the first one. And I'll explain why. Right now, we have Democrats and Republicans fighting over how to get these direct assistance checks to people and who would get them, who wouldn't, how much would they get. But they're losing precious time that we absolutely need to mitigate and contain. I understand that we don't know what's going to happen for months to come and we're going to need long-term assistance. I get that. But if we right now argue who gets how much, all we're doing is losing time. Right now, the bill that's on the table excludes lots of different people, people who don't pay enough taxes. They're, the amount that is being suggested for them is $600. People who are in a low-income bracket, the amount that's being suggested is a different amount. People who are on Social Security or SSI benefits, disability benefits, right now are being completely excluded from this package. These are the most vulnerable people in our society. They are not only compromised in terms of their mobility in many cases, but they have underlying health issues, which means they can't go to the grocery store. So they may have to pay extra service fees for delivery. They may have to wait a week or two to get certain delivery. Think about it. Excluding them and doing means testing at this time is the absolute worst thing they can do. And this is the biggest mistake that both you know, parties today are doing, arguing about how and who gets the money. It is very important for them to issue immediate cash and buy time while they mitigate and suppress and get our resources um, up to where they need to be to handle this challenge. Uh, earlier, I want to circle back a little bit. Uh, you talked about health infrastructure, um, not just people who are trained, but like the physical tools and equipment, stuff like masks, ventilators. First of all, uh, I saw that a lot of states are asking for people who are retired to come back uh, and start working, uh, you know, helping to mitigate the, these symptoms. And personally, like, it's kind of rough because those are the people who, in many cases, are the most at risk of actually catching it. And they're kind of being asked to go back into the fray. Um, but when you talk about the physical infrastructure for responding to this, um, or even, I guess, healthcare for all in general as one of your policies. Uh, what does that look like and what does that mean? So one of the things you'll notice a lot of people talking about today is that we don't, our healthcare system doesn't have the infrastructure required to handle what's going on today. So I want to explain what that really means, what scaling the infrastructure means, because I've been talking about that since I launched our campaign back in July of 2019. And I've been talking about it in terms of Medicare for All, which is a single payer system. One of the things that I've been talking about is, look, our system today, even if we went to Medicare for All, cannot sustain the 80 million plus people who are uninsured and underinsured. Our system relies on the fact that those people are not going in to get care or they're going in to get care at ER when things are things have progressed too much. That's how our system is made today. And so I've been talking about scaling the infrastructure. Now, scaling the infrastructure, there are many, many different layers of it. One is scaling the infrastructure about the 
billing system, for example. There's the billing system, which is hospital or provider-based. Then there's the insurance system, which is owned by private health insurance companies. So today in the United States, we have what's called a many-to-many system. So when we talk about system architecture, um, we talk about a many-to-many system. This is the most complicated and least efficient system that you can have. If you want a comparison, for example, the UK NHS system is a one-to-one system where the government owns both the providers as well as the government is the payee. So what single pair is, is a many-to-one system, and it's one of the most efficient ways to drive down the cost of healthcare, which means all the providers stay private, but the payee becomes the government. So it's a many-to-one system. That takes out the bureaucracy, the complications, and the cost of a many-to-many system, number one. Then there's the scaling part about healthcare professionals and infrastructure in general. For example, not enough doctors, nurses, PAs, nurse practitioners, etc. Not enough professionals, number one. Number two, not enough infrastructure to house people. For example, the biggest hospitals in our country and hospitals across our country are already at 95% capacity. That's why you hear about all elective surgeries having to be canceled right now because we literally do not have the capacity to house people that need to be hospitalized due to this coronavirus challenge that we're facing. So we have not planned for this at all. Now, we can do this. These problems are very solvable. In fact, scaling infrastructure is a very known engineering problem, something that we've been doing over and over again in private industry. For example, every single person almost in the United States, has a mobile phone. And pretty much all of us can talk whenever we need to. And we've scaled the system in a way that we're getting coverage almost everywhere in the United States. So this infrastructure scaling can be done. But you can't scale the system the way you would for a normal population versus a pandemic. So one of the things that we would should have prepared for is how do you put up pop-up hospitals? How do you put up pop-up testing? So the way you would normally do testing is very different from the way you would accelerate testing in a pandemic. The process for doing it is completely different because you want to scale up really fast in a very short amount of time. So these challenges have already been solved in the engineering profession over and over again And we can do this. And that's what I'm saying is that not only do we need to scale the healthcare infrastructure, our government has the resources, the technology, and the the folks that are expert. We have the expertise to get this stuff done. But you can't take what we have steady state today and address it. And this pandemic is now revealing these major challenges in our system today. And that's what I mean when I talk about scaling the infrastructure. But you can kind of see how it's multifold. It's not just it's not just one directional. Um, in terms of materially producing um, the respirators and things like that, um, there's something called the Wartime Production Act. Uh, I assume that you're like in support of the president 
using that power to put the focus of the United States production just on creating those physical machines that are needed. Um, uh, I guess drive-throughs are also like a very good way to um, set up testing. I know that in South Korea, uh, a lot of those testing booths have been just taking over small areas and popping them up really quickly. That way people can just drive into a parking lot. And apparently the physical infrastructure is maybe thinner than you would think. Absolutely. You have to react to this as if it's a wartime action. So one thing, you know, people are already doing is that they've lifted some of the regulations on producing masks. Um, we should definitely avail every law there is in order to produce the equipment that we need and the hospitals that we need. And we should avail all the expertise that is available to do this in the most safest way possible. That's the only way we get out of this and go back to some sense of normalcy. So uh, doctors being able to practice across borders, um, doctors from different professions being able to come in and support when, when they're going to need to, because at some point, there's a very high chance that we will encounter what's being encountered in Italy today, where they are unable to keep up with the number of cases in their hospitals. And we're going to have to bring all our healthcare professionals together and be able to address this um, in a very serious manner in order to be able to um, get back to where we want to be. You've got to run off. Uh, it has been delayed. Uh, by a few weeks. Uh, is this changing? Obviously, you talked a lot about the impact that canvassing had on your campaign. And I would just assume that's going to be way out of the window for a little while. So uh, how has that delay impacted the way that you are running your campaign? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about Texas is that we have mail-in ballots for a certain population over 65 um, people who have disabilities, et cetera, but we don't have mail-in voting for the entire country. So um, long-term, you know, um, we should be getting away from just standing in line voting. I think it's archaic, it's inefficient. It doesn't allow everyone to participate in democracy, but short-term mail-in voting would be a great solution because we actually don't know what's going to happen in May or even in June. So right now the runoff went, has been postponed from May 26th to um, July 14th. So approximately six, six weeks out. But we have no idea what the situation will be in July. But here's, here's the thing, right? Even if our state wanted to institute mail-in voting for every single Texan, they don't have the infrastructure set up to do so because they've never thought through, hey, what happens if something like this happens? How do we make sure that we're able to have a good voting system? Now, it's not like it's impossible. Think about it. We, today, millions of people are getting packages to their home and all of these packages have tracking numbers. And this entire system is, you know, automatic. No one's sitting there typing in a 29-digit tracking number to find out, you know, this package going to another place. You scan it in, it's already auto automatic, and you know exactly where your package is at any time of the day after you've ordered it. 
So the challenge that I want to bring up is that we have not prepared for these challenges at all. And we need to be able to prepare for these. Short term, that would be a great solution. Long term, we need to get away from standing in line voting, as I said. We need to put in people in Congress that are competent, that for a long time, we have put in people in Congress that don't necessarily have the skill set or the expertise to ask the questions that need to be asked because they're not even focused on what the problem is and solving it. They're just focused on getting into Congress. And then all of a sudden they become advocates for corporations and staying in power because they're so moved by corporate PAC money or just PACs in general. So special interests and lobbyists completely own our Congress people today. And we have to put in people who are competent, who are looking at the problems and want to solve it. So the runoff, it remains to be seen how it goes. Obviously, we have completely come to a standstill in terms of canvassing today. We have to see where this goes. We have to put people's health first. We have to put people's safety first. But one of the best things that Texas could do right now in the short term is go to all mail-in voting. We've gone through a whole lot and a small amount of time. Um, if you had to guess, uh, how long are we going to be under this condition and how long are we going to be in a state of crisis? Uh, I don't know whether that's going to be something that lasts for a couple of months or is something that is going to dominate the rest of the year. So you're somebody who has thought about these issues a lot. So how do you see all of this going? It will very much depend on how Congress acts and how fast they act. If they drag their feet on getting direct assistance to small businesses and Americans across the country today that have lost their jobs, that have diminished income to zero income, to the most vulnerable population, the elderly, the disabled, if they drag their feet on this, this could become a very serious problem and be many months. If they're smart about it and quickly address these immediate stress challenges that people are facing today, where people's rent is going to be due, where people's utility bills are going to be due and they're not going to have money to pay, then they can minimize this in a big way. The one thing I do know that will happen is I don't believe we'll ever go back to a life that we had before. And I don't say that to be dramatic, but I think a lot of people, the, you know, the, the technologist, the engineer, and the product manager in me wants to say that for a lot of people, lives will become different. People will discover things like um, delivery services, which you know, they may have used once or twice or never used or heard about it and wanted to try it out. They may become more normal, become accelerated. When we have major universities offering the rest of the semester online, we have schools that are closed. Homework hasn't, you know, uh, stopped coming in. We may find new ways to bring education into people's homes. We may solve some of the internet accessibility challenges that we have across the country in rural areas and low-income families that don't have access to high-speed internet. I hope this pandemic 
will help us do good things for the future in terms of scaling our healthcare infrastructure, making it more enduring, covering every single person in this country, and dislodging it from being tied to employment, which makes absolutely no sense because people are changing jobs all the time. Sometimes people are out of jobs. We need to completely remove healthcare coverage from employment. These things will make us more prepared to take on big challenges like this. And I hope that we will transform with policy that works for everybody and To be frank with you, I hope Congress wakes up, comes together, and acts quickly because if they don't, it's going to be a big mistake. And if they do, it'll be the best thing that they can do for us, Uh, just not just as Americans, but for the, I hope people across the world, leadership across the world does the right thing for for the people in their country. Uh, We are kind of at an extremely unique position in history because we are in the middle of a health crisis and an economic crisis. And from the early days of your campaign, uh, I think that the issues that you have been raising about our economic system and in your very pragmatic and calm way have talked about are issues that just in the last month have been raised to the extreme forefront of everybody's mind. Uh, and I think it's going to change the way that people have maybe thought about what their political priorities are. Um, And it's important for, I think, people nationally to take a note of the people who saw these kinds of situations coming uh, and started developing policy that is designed to help society in those times. Um, Donna Imam, you're running uh, Texas 31st uh, for Congress. Can you let people know where they can go to engage more with your campaign? So it's vote for donna.com and there's links to all my social media there Uh, please engage with our campaign we need you and these are trying times for many of us Um, and i ask you if you have the ability to support our campaign with a donation we would be so much grateful for that Um, and i only ask if you have the ability but please join our campaign engage with us uh Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and we need you uh, so that we can take these ideas to Congress and build a better future for our country. Donna, thank you very much. Uh, This has been uh, another exciting special episode of Not Safe for Wonks. Brandon Buchanan, Donna Imam, uh, it was nice to talk to you, and I hope that people had a good time listening to you, and we will be back after a while. Bye-bye. I really appreciate it, Brandon. Absolutely. Anytime.